comes louder. He's one on one with Hemsley, and Hemsley blocks it. Mitchell spins on Childs and one. Cal up top. Shepard. Shepard was asking for it for three. And he popped it deep. He was banging. Well, Watson and a foul. This is a clinic. This is Aztec basketball. What's up, Aztec fans? Welcome to the Aztec Breakdown Podcast. My name is Trone. I'll be your host. Remember to uh, find me, all the social media stuff, follow me, five-star reviews, like, subscribe, all the stuff, whatever. We're not going to waste time doing that stuff today. There's a couple things I want to talk about, as per usual. It's normally a couple things I want to talk about. And I guess, really, let's just get right into it. The Aztecs are 26-0 and after beating uh, New Mexico at home and Boise State on the road. In my opinion, Boise State was the hardest game left on the schedule just because of their size and their athleticism. You know, Nevada is probably a little bit better than Boise State, but in terms of matchups, I thought Boise State was a harder matchup. And the Aztecs went into Boise and and just took them to town, uh, which which gives me as a fan a lot of confidence. It, it should give the players a lot of confidence, especially since uh, they struggled in the first half against New Mexico against similar types of length and size, and then you know they were able to to right the ship in in the course of four days and and just basically have their way with Boise State. Boise had one point in the second half where they went on a on a 10-0 run um, on the back of, I think, Justinian Jessup had two three-pointers, and there were a couple offensive rebounds in that span as well. And uh, like I tweeted out, like it's no surprise that they go on a 10-0 run when they're getting offensive rebounds. That was one of the keys to the game. I said, I tweeted out before the game had started, so it wasn't a surprise. But Aztecs went in, won by 20-something, I don't even remember. And and now they're twenty six and zero, and it's just I I well okay I had to write a recap for East Village Times for those of you that don't know I I write for Mountain West Wire and I also write for the East Village Times when when I can and so I you know immediately I put out the recap I tried to do it as quick as possible and then after that I was able to sit there for a second and just be like wow this is this is really happening and. I want to bring it back really quick to the beginning of the season. I know my expectations before the season started were that this team would make in the NCAA tournament and maybe depending on the matchup, they'd win a game. Uh, but I was pretty confident that they would make the tournament, whether it was as an at-large or uh, the automatic bid. Either way, at this point based on those expectations, this team has at the very least met those expectations. I think it's safe to say that no matter what happens over the course of the next however many games, there's three more regular season games, plus possibly as many as three in the Mountain West tournament, um, plus however many in the NCAA tournament. But however many games it is, if the Aztecs say lose the next three regular season games, plus they lose their first game in the Mountain West tournament for whatever reason, right? This team still has met those expectations. And honestly, those were the expectations I had with Nathan Mensa in the lineup. Cause I thought he was going to be the defensive anchor and the defensive centerpiece that was going to keep the defense afloat while the offense reigned in points on the opposition. And that hasn't been the case. So really, we haven't gotten to the tournament yet and they've already exceeded at the very least my expectations. And from what I can tell, a lot of people had very similar expectations. They might've had, you know, different records projected and stuff like that. But from what I can tell, most people had the Aztecs or at least most Aztec fans had the Aztecs making the tournament, but probably not making a lot of noise, you know, maybe win a game or two, but not making a lot of noise. I remember I, before I was writing for other places, I would just open up a, a Google Doc and I would write stuff and then I would share the doc. And that was like 
just a way of writing something a little bit more uh, in depth. And it was before I started the podcast. And I, I wrote something and what I wrote wasn't what I was trying to say. What, what I was trying to say was that it, it was the beginning of the season and I was trying to say this is the time of year where optimism bias runs rampant. And people are saying, you know, this team can be a sweet 16 team or this team can be a final four team. What, whatever they, you know, tend to say at the beginning of the season. And I was trying to combat that optimism bias and try to bring myself down to reality a little bit more. What people took that as was I was saying I thought this team could possibly make a final four and it got put up on Facebook and I got blasted for it. And, and honestly at the time, like I get it and it's, it's, I'm not calling anybody out. Like I went back and I reread it and I was like, this is what this says. That's not what I was trying to say, but it is what it says. And so like I edited it and I made a little note, like in, in the Google doc, this isn't what I was trying to say. This is what I was actually trying to say. Um, anyways, so the, the point is basically no Aztec fans thought this team was capable of making a final four, maybe a sweet 16 if they got a little bit lucky, but for sure they should make the tournament. And I'm saying if they lose the next four games in a row, three regular season plus the first game in the tournament in, in the Mountain West tournament, they would still make the NCAA tournament. And so they have met those expectations at the very least. And I don't know, to me, that's, that's just a cool feeling. And it's kind of nice to, uh, as a fan to sit back and relax, right? Obviously like Dutcher has been saying, like coach Dutch has been saying that team needs to be greedy and it would be awesome if they can go undefeated. And that's the hope. But I don't know, just compared to the last couple years where it was like, well, <laughs> you have to win three games in March. Otherwise, the season was, you know, nothing. Um, it's kind of nice. So there's that. The next thing I wanted to talk about is this narrative we have with the Nike ball, right? Uh, Mark Ziegler has been putting out in his articles that the Aztecs have been using a new Nike ball. Just as a recap for, you know, if anybody isn't aware, they've been using a new Nike ball because it has special technology in it. And the Mountain West Conference made a deal with this company to get coaches real-time analytics, basically. And fans can get it too. And you guys can can look it up. It's called the Shot Tracker app. And it has some some cool stuff. I don't like the way it's set up or the way they present the information. Um, but if you have it alongside you while you're watching the game, you can see some kind of cool things. It tells you like how far each player has run, how many times the ball has uh, switched sides horizontally on the court on offense. So it, you know, it gives you stats for like how, how well the ball is moving basically things like that. But so they were using this Nike ball because it had a special chip in it that helped the computers track everything. And it was one of the things that was blamed for the Aztecs possibly shooting poorly at the beginning of the season. And as I look back, I'm kind of amazed that that was a narrative because when I look at like the 10 game heat tracker, nobody was really ever shooting poorly. Maybe KJ Fagan, but that was about it. So I don't know. Anyways, sorry, I'm all stuffy. I don't know why I'm stuffy, but it is what it is. The narrative was that the ball was a big part of the reason, right? And Ziegler even had an article where uh, the Aztecs, the coaches decided that they would start using a Wilson ball uh, during, during home games. Cause you get to choose what ball you use if it's, if it's your arena. And he said the players like came up and gave them hugs and they were so happy because the Nike ball just, it, it's, it, it's, it's a different feel and it bounces weird and, and there's dead spots in it. So you'll be dribbling and it, it doesn't return to your hand the way it's supposed to. And, you know, all sorts of issues. And what I found when I looked at the data, when I looked at the previous 10 games, this was before the Boise state game, but it did include the game, uh, at home against New Mexico. When I looked at the previous 10 games, five of them were at home, five of them were away. And the Aztecs shot better at home than they did on the road. And you would have thought that wouldn't have been the case if this ball was causing as many problems as, uh, as it was reported to be, to be causing, you know? And so that was, it was just an interesting find. And, and I never really liked the ball narrative because 
the the perception was that other teams were hitting these shots and the Aztecs couldn't and you know they were using the same ball so i i never really liked that narrative of blaming the ball when other teams are making shots and you and you aren't uh but i mean ultimately if the players like the wilson ball better you should probably use that just if only for the psychological benefit but this ball narrative that has been pushed the the data doesn't agree with it basically the the aztecs have shot better at home than they have on the road which you would expect normally but if the ball narrative was true they should be shooting worse and that has not been the case next up i have to pull up my notes here i had a specific order where the stuff would flow real nice and i forgot what the next thing was uh oh okay so one thing i wanted to bring up i should have pulled up the stats for this i'm going to try and do that on my phone here real quick Earlier in the season, another narrative that we had was that this Aztec team is really deep, right? Eight, nine, ten guys deep, and it was great. Nathan Mensah has been out with injury. Matt Mitchell has been in the starting lineup. And since then, I think it's fair to question how deep this team really is. And I'll give you an example, okay? Against Boise State, let's look at the bench. Trey Pulliam played 14 minutes. So he's the sixth man, and he, you know, he probably should be the sixth man. But he's a sixth man. He played 14 minutes. He took two shots, didn't hit either of them, had one rebound, one assist, one turnover, one steal. Right? So not a not a great line, right? And there's context in there, right? You why would Trey Pulliam take a shot when you have guys like Malachi Flynn and Matt Mitchell on the team? So he shouldn't necessarily be taking a lot of shots, but not a not a super great line, and that's no disrespect to Trey. I've I've been very vocal that he's been improving little by little, pretty much every game. But it's just not a not a great line. Let's look at seventh guy, Adam Seiko. Eight minutes, two points, one of two from the field, and a turnover. Right, uh, a Gueca rope. Six minutes, no points, one rebound, one assist, one turnover. Nolan Narain, four minutes. One point, one of two from the free throw line, no shots, and he committed one foul. So that's, what is it, 14, 22, 28, 32. 32 minutes were played by the bench in a game that has 200 total minutes to to allocate. Uh, with all the starters playing at least 30, if not more minutes, like Malachi Flynn played 37. Yanni Wetzel played 36. Those are numbers that are okay in times like now, especially going into a bye week, right, where the Aztecs don't play during the weekdays. In a setting like the Mountain West Tournament, that can possibly start to take its toll, playing three games in three days. In a setting like the March Madness Tournament, where you might play two games in three days and the competition is admittedly better, uh, that can take its toll as well, possibly. And so, especially in the March Madness tournament where that second game you have one day to prep for and scout, right? That that energy and that hustle can possibly help make up for a couple mistakes here and there. And if you don't have it as much because you just played 40 minutes two days ago, it can be hard to do that. So I think it's fair to wonder if this team is really as deep as the narrative was earlier in the season to their credit, you know, Adam Seiko has had a couple great games and he's normally a pretty solid contributor. Trey Pulliam has had a couple really good games, including one where he led the whole team in scoring. And I don't think he missed a shot. He was like seven or seven from the field and six of eight from the free throw line. If I'm remembering correctly, you know, a rope, a rope, I think is the biggest outlier here because I think he's a lot better than that Boise State stat line indicates. And he's just likely uh, rusty and getting his game legs back and stuff. I haven't looked at the Boise tape yet. I did manage on Friday to watch the first half of the Utah State game and the first half of the New Mexico game. And I'll get to that in a minute. But a rope, I think, is the biggest 
outlier in this sense. I think he's a guy who could relatively easily see his minutes bump up to 12 or 14. And hopefully that would take some of the onus off of guys like Yanni Wetzel or Matt Mitchell. Uh, but the, the point is, I think it's a fair question to ask. And I think that the depth isn't what it once was, but I think there's a very specific reason for that. And that brings me into the next point. I said last week that if I was the coach, I would probably have, uh, let me, sorry, backtrack. Assuming Nathan Mensa returns this season, which still feels like a big assumption. I'm still kind of telling myself in the back of my mind, like it's not going to happen that way. If it doesn't happen, I'm not, you know, sad. I'm not getting my hopes up. It's just one of those things. I, I have no clue what the likelihood is of it happening or not. But let's say he does come back. I said last week in last week's episode that I would have Nathan start and I would move Matt Mitchell to the bench. And I said that because, uh, the team is better with Nathan flat out, assuming, you know, he's close to what he was at the very least, right? The, the numbers have when Nathan Mensa is on the court, the team is seven points per 100 possessions better, uh, than when he's off the court. And so, and that's regardless of who else is on the floor with him. And so, you know, I would have him play and most of that, you know, the offense isn't as good, but the defense is so much better. And so for a team that's trying to build itself on defense, I'd want to have Nathan Mensa out there. Now, reasonable people can disagree. And the reason I bring it up is because Coach Dutcher, in one of his more recent interviews, disagreed, right? And and I say this a lot. Uh, any of the coaches on the basketball team, and honestly, probably the managers too, have forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know, right? Um, so this isn't like, I don't know. The, the, I'm not trying to trash talk them, right? Um, but I do think reasonable people can disagree, and Coach Dutcher, Dutcher disagreed. And his rationale was that if Nathan were to come back, he would likely keep the starting lineup the way it is uh, because it's been working, which makes sense. I, I, uh, I don't disagree with the argument. I, I, I do disagree that it would be the better move, but you can see at the very least where he's coming from. And hopefully you can see at the very least where I'm coming from as well. I, I think I also at the very least alluded to it last week that, uh, I think Nathan would be better in the starting lineup and Matt Mitchell would be better served in this scenario to come off the bench because now that team is deeper because Matt Mitchell is such a versatile player. Whereas if Nathan Mensa comes off the bench, all he can do is play his one position, right? And so even though technically the bench is still one guy deeper either way, I think Matt Mitchell coming off the bench would just have a greater cumulative impact than would Nathan Mensa coming off the bench. Um, just, just with how versatile Matt Mitchell is and the different roles he can he can play. If if Nathan comes off the bench, he's either coming off to spell Yanni or he's bumping Yanni up to the four, and somebody else is getting getting a breather. Um, whereas Matt Mitchell could come in for Yanni at the four, could come in for Shackle at the three. In theory, could come in for one of the guards at the two spot, depending on what the lineup is. And and in terms of actual skills on the court, can do more as well. Whereas Whereas Nathan is just um, going to bring a little bit of low post scoring and lock down the paint and rebounding and and stuff, which which, I don't know, as I hear myself saying that it sounds like I'm minimizing Nathan's contributions, which isn't the intent. I, I still think Nathan is one of the most important players on this team and would be the key to a deep March run. Should he come back? Uh, But I just, I just wanted to point out that, you know, coach Dutcher, had said that and that I do disagree, but you know, it's, it's reasonable. And I, I understand both sides of the argument, wherever you land is, is, uh, fine. I guess I, I don't know. Um, the last thing I wanted to look at 
before going to break. Wow, this is we're at 20 minutes here, so that's kind of crazy. Um, I'm definitely gonna need a break here in a minute. About normally at about 20 minutes, my voice is starting to go. But last thing I wanted to look at was I wanted to look at each player and point out little things that they can improve on in order to make a run to the tournament. I I had talked on Twitter and I may have mentioned it in a pod about team wide, what the team can do to uh, in order to make a deep run. But I wanted to look at each individual player and their tendencies. And that's why I looked at the first halves of those two games. Um, That's just what I had time to look at was the first half. I did a, I, I woke up at four in the morning one morning and instead of going back to bed, I was like, you know what? I'm up. So this is what's going to happen. And I went out to the, the living room and I, uh, watched the first half of New Mexico. And then I went to the gym and the first half, really both halves of the Utah state game are on YouTube. And so I watched the first half of the Utah state game on YouTube. And these are some of the things that I noticed. Some of this stuff was a lot better during the Boise state game which was really encouraging, but I'm still going to bring it up because one game doesn't necessarily make a trend and hopefully it can uh, keep on improving. So here's what I got. Also, just to be super extra clear, a lot of this stuff is really nitpicky, um, but there's always room to improve, right? And so with that out of the way, let's get to it. KJ Fagan, we'll start with our point guard. I would like to see KJ finish better around the rim, right? I haven't noticed anything like in terms of form or whatever that I think is is problematic. I'm not a shot doctor, so I, you know, it doesn't mean I would have noticed it, but um, I haven't noticed anything. But ideally, he can finish better around the rim. He did that pretty well against Boise State. He had one especially tough shot at the rim that he made against Boise state, which was really nice to see. But if he can do that, it just adds another dimension to his game, right? Because he's been hitting those three point shots recently. And, uh, if he can add that up fake and drive, you know, then the offense is in an advantageous position. He can finish at the rim. He can kick out to another shooter for an even better shot. It just opens up options. Right. And so that's the thing I would like to see from KJ. And then, you know, if he can finish at the rim, it also helps if somebody else is having a slump of a game, um, then KJ is a more well-rounded scorer and he can help pick up that slack as he's done a couple times throughout the season. So there's that Malachi Flynn, my thing with him, it wasn't nearly as much the case at Boise, but for a couple games before then it had been the case. Uh, my thing with Malachi was his shot selection and it's a really tricky thing to do. And, and coach Dutcher has alluded to this indirectly, not specifically about Malachi, but he's just mentioned it in general that, you know, you want guys to be confident. And so just cause a guy is missing a couple shots, coach Dutch, isn't going to go out and say, Hey, stop shooting, you know, find something else to do. Uh, but Malachi will sometimes have a tendency to just, you know, pull up, from three at a time where, uh, you know, he's, he's at least slightly guarded, if not heavily guarded, uh, it's early in the shot clock, you know, something can be done to get a better shot, but he has a lot of confidence in himself and in his game as he should. Um, but I would, I would like to see like one or two of those shots a game be traded away for trying to find a better shot. Basically, um, I, I, I thought that that was a big part of why Malachi shooting percentages have been dropping recently. I posted on Twitter, a graph of, uh, shooting percentages over 10 games and Malachi's has been steadily declining throughout the season before the Boise state game. It was at about 30% from three point range, which is above average. No, it's below average. It's a, it's above where it would need to be to be more efficient than a long two pointer, but it's below average accuracy. The accuracy, the average for three point shooting is about 33% for college this year. And so if he's shooting 30, it's below average and he should probably find another way to 
impact the game. And to his credit, in the second half of New Mexico, he did exactly that. He started taking it to the rim more. He started dishing that more, doing things of that nature. Uh, rebounding. He's been super focused on rebounding, I feel like, lately. Not so much boxing out, which is more what I've been calling out for the team. But he's been getting a lot of rebounds, I feel like. And there was one against Boise where he got a rebound over like two or three Boise guys who were taller than him. It was kind of amazing. But that was it, was the shot selection. And hopefully with the shot selection improving, the accuracy would improve. Uh, He went four for nine from deep against Boise, which brought up his 10-game average you know, for, for the last 10 games up to about 32%, which is much better. Um, I know it, you know, 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but if he can start to get that to trend back up and level that out at around 35, then that's a solid shot, right? That he should take. So there's, there's Malachi Flynn. And, and uh, I, once again, I do really like that when his shot isn't falling, he, he will normally find other ways to contribute in the game. I think I wish it would happen a little bit faster, but that's also the thin line between, you know, his confidence and if he is doing it cause he doesn't believe in his shot, then it's going to hurt other aspects of his game. And it's a very, it's a very fine art there. So it's, it's a hard thing to complain about. And especially when you're 26 and Oh, but there's that Jordan shackle. My only thing with him is don't get those, those silly reaching fouls. Right. And it's tough. He got a couple of them against New Mexico and it can put him into foul trouble when he's, he's guarding a guy and he's, he's reaching for the ball and you know, his hand grazes the arm of the player or whatever. And the ref calls it. And then 60 seconds later, the same thing happens. And now he has two fouls. That's, that's happened a couple times throughout the season. It sucks because Shackle has such a great impact, especially on the offensive end. Even if he's not shooting, the impact is still there. He still he still uh, brings that gravity. And so you want him on the floor, absolutely. But if he's in foul trouble, you can't do that. It's another thing that's tough to complain about because in the Boise game, I was trying to watch his hands pretty closely and he was still reaching a lot. He just, the refs weren't calling the fouls. I don't know if that's because he was, you know, not touching like the arms as much, you know, if he was just a little bit better at it or what the case was exactly, I don't know. But so it, it makes it another thing. It's hard to complain about because when it works and he's getting steals um, or even just bothering the, the ball handler, it looks great, right? It's just when he's drawn fouls, all of a sudden it looks terrible. And so there's probably a middle line in there where you can be a little bit more conservative with your hands, but still like choose your moments to try and disrupt the ball handler. Maybe I don't know, but that's, you don't want Jordan Shackle to be in foul trouble. Matt Mitchell was pretty similar. Actually, uh, none of those quick, silly, easy fouls. Matt Mitchell is probably the guy who gets into foul trouble most on this team, which is tough because, he's one of the best players on the team and one of the most versatile players on the team between his size, his weight, his newfound agility and his, his skills, his ball handling skills, his shooting skills. Um, you know, he's, he's one of the best players. And so same thing, you want him on the court as much as you can. And if he's in foul trouble, it's hard to do that. The other thing, and this was something I noticed during the Boise game, Matt Mitchell will sometimes just get ahead of steam and decide, you know what, I'm taking this one to the hoop. Um, And it makes it easier for the defense to try and get in position and draw a charge, do things like that, which also goes along with Matt Mitchell getting into foul trouble. So in certain situations, I would like to see Matt Mitchell work on reading what the defense is doing and reacting to it as opposed to just making a decision and hoping it works out happened probably two times during the Boise game. And I don't remember if any of them resulted in fouls, but neither of them resulted in points either. Um, whereas he could have probably been driving and then kicked it to somebody and uh, gotten an open look that way. So the read and react from Matt Mitchell, I think could be a little bit 
better. For Yanni Wetzel, this was one of those things that I didn't notice too much in the Boise game, but was pretty evident, especially in the first half of the New Mexico game. When when I was watching the New Mexico game live, you know, as as we all saw, Yanni would get double in the post and he ended up throwing a couple turnovers. And it was really bad. And live, what I thought it was, was that he was telegraphing his passes. And so I was like, well, that's, you know, a relatively easy fix. You get in the film room. Okay, Anchor cut me off. I guess they have a recording limit of about 30 minutes, which probably means I've been talking too much. About Yanni Wetzel, like I was saying, it seemed like an easy fix. You get in the film room, you show him that the passes were being telegraphed, and uh, maybe have him add a pass fake before making his actual pass, right? Just to slightly shift that weak side defender over. When I watched it live, what I actually noticed was it wasn't so much that the passes were being telegraphed. It's that Yanni was making the read and would often make it like half a second too late, right? And so a guy would be, whatever the case is, whether they're spotting up on the – the weak side three point line, or there was one where I think it was Matt Mitchell cut from the weak side wing into the paint. Um, and Yanni just, you know, he just took, maybe it was KJ Fagan. Regardless, he just took a half second too long to realize that the pass should have been made. And then by the time he realized it, it was too late and he would either not make the pass or, he would still try to force it in there, but by in that half a second, that's all it takes. And the defender had realized what was happening and was able to recover and get the steal. And that's one of those things that when people talk about, uh, you know, if San Diego state has played good teams or not this season, there's some ways where that's not really like a great argument. It depends on the specific context you're using it in, but that could be one of those things where it's actually, a good point because the better teams will notice those things faster and react to them even faster. And so making that read a half second late will almost guarantee a turnover rather than, you know, giving a chance for a turnover. Um, But just making those reads, you know, Yanni's great in the post, but uh, making those passing reads, he's been very good at it overall throughout the season. That was just in the first half of the New Mexico game. But making reads on on you know where the double is coming from, if somebody's cutting and when to pass it to them, uh, whether you should try and beat the double by shooting over it or passing to the open man, you know it's it's a lot of stuff to process in a very short amount of time, and I don't I don't envy Yanni for that. Um, he's been very good at it overall, but in the New Mexico game, it was a little bit lacking. So that was something to to improve on. Next up, got a Gweka rope. And my notes were, first off, get healthy, right? Um, don't do anything over the next four to six games that's going to re-injure you, right? Because a Gwek, a rope is a guy we need come, come March Madness time. So, get healthy. That's not something I'm not saying he's been like trying to go out and hurt himself or anything, but that's just number one. Let's focus on that. You know, if, if the ball goes on the floor, a maybe don't dive for it, which I know sounds like counterintuitive because it would be nice to go undefeated and that diving for that ball might help that or hurt it. But I would rather make it to the first elite eight or final four then go undefeated. I think like if I had to choose, you know, um, that's, I mean, that's just me, but we need a Gwek. So get healthy. The next thing for a Gwek is play within yourself. And what I mean by that is I feel like sometimes a Gwek will take shots that aren't his shot for example, right? Like there's shots he's good at and there's shots he's not so good at. And this, I mean, once again, kind of plays with that confidence line I brought up with Malachi Flynn, but, you know, take the shots that you're good at, those putbacks, um, rolling to the basket as, as a roll man, 
to a certain extent post shots. He's okay in the post. He's not Yanni, but he's okay. You know, take those types of shots. Don't take like baseline mid-range jumpers. Don't take three-point shots really. Um, you know, stuff like that. Play within yourself because more often than not, if a Gueca rope takes a three-point shot, that ball is just going to the other team, right? It's more or less a turnover. So keep working the ball around, set those screens, do what you do well. Um, and don't try to do more than that because once you're on the bench, you're a role player, right? And so I've said on the pod before with the role players, it's very important to try as best as you can to only have them do what they're good at. And, uh, yeah, that's something I think a rope could focus on. The last note on a rope is just a rope is, you know, as far as I can tell, he's like the enforcer on the team. He's, he's just the big dude that's going to get in the other team's face and, and, uh, smack him around on the floor and, and, and do all that stuff, you know, and all the good teams have a guy like that. A rope is that guy, but I do think you need to be smart about when you do that. There was a game. I don't remember if it was New Mexico or not, but I think a rope got like a technical or there was a double technical or something for just, you know, getting in a guy's face and drawing off and stuff like that. And it's, it's not what you want to see. Um, you don't want to give the other team free throws, right? So absolutely be the enforcer for the most part. I think when he's done it, he's been great at it. But like I said, there was that one time, um, and that's that's a should be a relatively easy fix once again. But those are my notes for a rope. Trey Pulliam. Trey Pulliam, like I said, I feel like he's been slowly improving for the most part for the whole season. Um, I don't know if it's happened so much the last two or three games, but over the course of the season, as he's gotten a feel for it, it has definitely been better. My notes for Trey were to be more aggressive, right? And what I specifically mean about that is when you're driving as much as you can either try and get to the rim or um, even if you're not driving, I feel like Trey will oftentimes get open three-point looks and will not shoot them. But Trey Pulliam coming into the season was like a career 35% shooter from deep. So like shoot your shot, Trey. If you're open, pull that trigger, you know? Um, That's basically it. I, I still feel like he settles too much for mid-range jumpers and specifically floaters. I, I prefer a mid-range jumper to a floater any day of the week. Um, to his credit, I don't remember. I don't think he shot one like against Boise, but he took two shots against Boise. So it's, it's a small sample size, but you know, be more aggressive on the offensive end, trust in your abilities and your ball handling um, and your, and your shooting. And you know, I feel like if that happens, it will help get guys like KJ and Malachi a little bit more rest come tournament time. Adam Seiko, it's hard to give notes on because of how little he's been playing the last couple games. He did have that thing where he stepped on the out-of-bounds line like three times during the New Mexico game. It's not something I'm worried about because I think those are the only three times all season that that's happened. And so three times in 26 games is pretty good ratio as far as I'm concerned. And it didn't happen against Boise. So, you know, that's a thing. I, I don't really have any, any notes for Seiko, I guess still just kind of like play within yourself, you know, um, there was a play during Boise where he, I don't remember if he up faked or not, but he ended up, you know, he caught the ball on the perimeter and he drove into the lane and the defense, swarmed him and he picked up the ball and tried to pass it to somebody and it ended up in a turnover. I, I don't want to say he shouldn't drive because driving is such an, you know, and driving, driving the the lane and getting to the hoop is such an important part of the game. So I don't want to say he shouldn't drive necessarily, but definitely as much as you can keep, you know, keep being that defensive guy that just locks people down. He's been great at that this season and keep shooting three point shots. He's had a good percentage from deep as well. So, you know, I don't really have any notes about Seiko. The last couple guys are pretty much the same notes across the board. 
to what extent it's their fault could be debatable, and I'll try and expand on that in a second here. But our last three guys are Nolan Narain, Joel Mensa, and Keyshad Johnson. Keyshad might play a little bit over the course of the next three games, but probably won't really play at all during the Mountain West tournament and probably not at all during the NCAA tournament. That being said, um, the notes for all three guys, because Nolan and Joel will likely play at least a couple minutes each game, are uh, very similar to my notes about a Gwaka Rope. It's just play within yourself, right? Do the things that you're good at and don't try to do too much. And the reason I say, wow, something just fell. The reason I say that uh, it it's you know debatable how much of it is their fault is because I will take Nolan Narain, for example, and I was tweeting this during the Boise State game, and I've said this on the podcast before. If Nolan Narain is in the game on defense, he needs to be in drop coverage on, on any pick and roll, which just means he, you know, as the screen comes, he calls it out, he drops into the paint, um, and basically protects the rim. And then it's the guard's responsibility to try and force the ball handler into the mid range area to take a long two point shot as opposed to, um, pulling up from three. Right. And the Aztecs rarely do that. And especially against teams that have really good shooters like Boise state with Justinian Jessup, like Utah state with Sam Merrill, right? Those are when those happen, the Aztecs will often either do a hard hedge or they'll just switch one through five like they did against Boise. But Nolan doesn't have the foot speed to switch. And that's not, you know, I'm not trying to like pick on the guy. It just, it's true, right? Generally speaking, he doesn't have the foot speed for it. And so if he gets isolated on a perimeter player, it's not going to end well pretty much ever. He's going to get blown by or he's going to, uh, the perimeter player will pull up from three like Justinian Jessup did on, on one shot against Nolan Rain and hit it. Um, and so the, the point is I don't think it's Nolan's fault that he was out there. I think he was just following the game plan. Um, but the game plan in that regard, I think could have been better. And it's tough because doing drop coverage against shooters like that is, is hard to do. Um, and I'll sometimes three point shooters will still get their shot off, you know, cause it, it puts a lot of onus on your, on your defensive guards to apply back pressure and kind of force them into that mid range area. But in my humble opinion, it would still probably be a little bit better. Um, so there's that. And then I guess, I guess the last thing we talked about those three guys. I'm not really going to talk about Nathan because he hasn't played in 15 games. I guess his thing would just be to, to get healthy too um, and to not rush it because his you know his health needs to come before anything else. The last thing, this wasn't in my notes, but I guess just in terms of the coaches, if I was to give constructive criticism about anything, it would just kind of feed off of what I was just talking about with the last three guys is putting players in position where they can be their best. The staff, I think does a really good job of that with the first five guys for six guys. Um, but after that, it feels like the bench players are expected to do the same things as the starters. And I don't think that they should be expected to do those same things, right? I think they should come in and play their role and be put in positions to be successful in those roles. And that I don't think has happened as much as I would like. doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but as much as I would like. Um, so there's that. And, you know, I, there's definitely value. If we go back to the Nolan rain example, to just playing everything the same way, no matter who is on the floor on your team, because you have to think less, which is nice. We've also heard that the team, um, because of all their their veteran experience, can switch up coverages, you know, because they have the experience and they have the playing time and they're just very smart, high IQ players. So 
it's one of those things again, where it's a balancing act. And, uh, you know, if, if the plan is to only play Nolan four minutes a game, then maybe it's okay to have him switch in and get burned for, or not even get burned because it's not a guarantee, but, you know, possibly get burned for four or five, maybe six at most possessions over the course of the whole game. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's one of those things where once again, reasonable people can disagree and I can definitely see the logic behind it. But I mean, even to, to a different extent, like guys like Trey Pulliam or Adam Seiko, like help put them in positions to exceed. Basically that would be the one thing with that. Wow. I've been talking for, I think about 45 minutes now I'm going to uh, take a break. And when we come back, we will look at the UNLV game. And we're back. I don't know if there's a lot to say about the UNLV game coming up. They have played in five games since the last time we played them. They won two of those, so they lost three of them. They play against Colorado State this week. um, And they are very slightly favored to win that game. They play against Colorado State uh, in Las Vegas, so they don't have to travel. So that's good for them. And then on Saturday, they come to Viejas. They're, uh, I mean, a lot of this was, is basically a review in terms of, in terms of scouting them. They, the last time we played, I think they actually had in conference games only, they had the best offense in the conference. Um, it, it was by hundredths of, of a point per 100 possessions. Um, so it wasn't by much. San Diego State was a very close second. But since then, that has that has dropped off. They are uh, currently fourth in the conference in offensive efficiency and sixth in defensive. So it's fallen off a little bit. On offense, they aren't very good at shooting the ball, right? Their, their three-point percentage is at about 30%. So... They don't have a lot of guys who are going to burn you consistently from deep, which is nice because it it lets you – it opens up different defensive coverages, right? The Aztecs won't have to switch one through five, things like that. But so they don't, they don't shoot very well. Offensively, their profile is similar to Aztec teams of the past where – a lot of times you're more so hoping to get an offensive rebound than anything else. They're the best offensive rebounding team in the conference. And so that will be something to look out for, not just in order to win this game, but in terms of matchups going into the NCAA tournament, um, you know, can the Aztecs keep the other team's players off the offensive boards? Right. We, I brought it up earlier. We saw against Boise state, they went on their run fueled by a couple offensive rebounds. So they're definitely important. The Aztecs definitely have to box out and secure those rebounds. And so both in the short term of winning this game, as well as using it as a litmus test going forward, the, the rebounding and the boxing out of this game will be very important. Um, They also, shoot a lot of free throws which is which is fine they they I mean they're able to do it cuz they play really fast right so they're going to try and run as much as they can and a lot of times when you do that you draw a lot of fouls they aren't super efficient at making their free throws they they make about 70% of them as a team uh which in the grand scheme of things is actually still a really efficient shot it's uh it would be about the same thing as shooting like 45% from three point range, something like that. Uh, So in the grand scheme of things, it's still really efficient, but relative to what other teams do, they aren't very great at making their free throws, but they, they draw a lot of them. So as I mentioned with the foul situation, you don't want to give up those easy fouls and to the Aztecs credit. Oh my gosh, they committed, I think seven fouls. Uh, the whole game against Boise state, like 
That's what I've been talking about. I've mentioned before, either in writing or the podcast, this is a tangent, I know, but like I've mentioned that this team, when they're locked in, they can defend you without fouling and it's beautiful, right? And and some of that is going to depend on like the refs too and stuff like that. But man, when they're locked in and they're playing defense without fouling, it's a wonderful thing because it just gets in the other team's head, right? A lot of times if the other team is defending you, you try to get to the line and you can see the ball go in and you know it just helps slow things down and settle everybody in. And if you're not getting fouled, you can't do that. And so to the Aztecs credit, that was awesome. Um, but getting back on track, UNLV draws a lot of fouls. They shoot a lot of free throws. They also commit a lot of fouls. And so their opponents shoot a lot of free throws as well. Um, the Aztecs haven't been great about drawing fouls over the course of the season. I think they only drew like 10 or 12 against Boise State, something like that. So part of it was definitely the refs just just letting the guys play. But uh, yeah, UNLV commits a lot of fouls. Once again, it's a byproduct a lot of the times of just running. Um, but that's, I mean, that's basically the matchup is box out, try and slow the game down, make them play your pace and do your best to not commit fouls. If the Aztecs do that, as far as I can tell right now, they should come out with a win. A lot of the times I, I record these podcasts and then as I scout the game over the course of the rest of the week, like I notice other things. And so the keys to the game I post on Twitter might be different from what I'm saying here. But if it is, that's why. It's because I saw something else that I thought was was more important. Um, the main guy to pay attention to, I'm definitely going to butcher his name. So sorry about this, but but check Mbake Diong. Um He's their starting center, 6'11", 220 pounds, 52nd in the nation in offensive rebounding percentage. So that's the dude to look out for. They have other guys, Bryce Hamilton, Amari Hardy. Amari Hardy got shut down last time he played the Aztecs, um, but so did Justinian Jessup, and he had a good game playing for Boise last night. So, you know, those are guys to look out for over the course of the game, basically. But with that, I mean, I think I think that does it. Uh, make sure to send in those those voice messages if you have any questions or or even just comments. You know, um, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a question because I don't know everything for sure. But make sure to send those in five star reviews. Uh, you know, nice comments, whatever the case may be. Follow, subscribe, like the whole deal. Um, and that does it for this one, Aztec fans. I will see you next week after the UNLV game. Take it easy out there.